Last week, I went out to my backyard to cut some bushes kind of down. This was a project, just to be honest with you, that I have been putting off and neglecting for a very long time. Uh, just FYI, if the bushes in your yard grow so big that your kids can begin to climb them like trees and build forts in them, you have neglected those bushes. And so instead of going back and just using some trimmer, I got out the chainsaw <laughs> and went out and just began to cut them down and all these branches and everything. And I went for an hour or so and finally got done. And to be honest with you, it looked pretty good. Top of it was just kind of all straight across like you're supposed to make it. You guys know what I'm talking about. The front and the back were kind of trimmed out. The, the, the sides were kind of manicured all in. And everything was looking really good. In fact, I, I, I loved it. I thought, well, a job well done, Mike Kwiatkowski. And so I stopped and I picked up uh, the chainsaw. And right when I started to turn to go around the house to put the chainsaw away, I noticed this massive, massive pile of sticks and branches and leaves and everything else just sitting there. And so I realized, uh-oh, the job's not quite done. I've got the hardest part kind of left here. And so I did what everybody does. I just waited till the next day. Didn't feel like I'd have enough time. Came back the next day. Then I started really doing the hard work. It seems to be easier to cut the bushes than to actually clean them up. And so got done with it, but I had to get done with it or else the job just wasn't going to be completed. Well, believe it or not, this reminds me a little bit of the last two messages that I have written and about to preach. Uh, sermon just last week, I preached a, a sermon that really, to be honest with you, just came very easily for me as I'm developing it. Um, the big idea was very clear. It was about doubt and specifically how John the Baptist himself began to doubt the identity of Jesus Christ. And, 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 it, it, and it, I just came up with a very simple illustration in the beginning to open it up, which set, to kind of set the course of the sermon. And then I came up with this really great final illustration. None of you remember it, but it was about the birth of one of my children. And it seemed to just, just bring the whole thing together. Even the points seemed to be connected. They were alliterated. They started with the same letter, the cause of doubt and the cure of doubt. That's how you want to put a sermon together. Well, the truth is I preached it, but before I preached it, I realized, well, wait a minute, I still have all these verses remaining about the life of John, not sure what I'm supposed to be doing with them. I'll clean them up next week. Well, I got done with the first part. That was the easy part. The cleaning up is going to be the hard part. I've got all these verses left about John. They don't fit together as well. They seem, it's hard to know even how they're ultimately connected, but in order to finish the job this morning, we need to address it. Why? Because God's not done teaching us concerning the life of John. He's got more to say. In the first week, we saw John's doubt. This week, we're going to take a look at John's greatness. So just one point today. If you're usually a note taker, that's it. John's greatness. That's, that's the whole point of the text. So we pick up this morning in verse 24. Follow along with me, if you will. It says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Now remember, Jesus loved John. He loved John. He cared for John. But he also knows that the crowd might have gotten uh, uh, the wrong idea about John because he had just had a conversation with John's disciples where John's disciples said, are you the one or is there one to come? So it was showing doubt. John or Jesus wanting to protect John is now going to explain to the crowd who heard this by explaining to them who John was and what he was all about. He didn't want them to get the wrong idea. 
And so what he does is he actually uses sarcasm. I love this. Jesus actually, when people say, why are you so sarcastic? You say, because Jesus was. And so you just kind of point to this passage. He uses an essence of sarcasm here by asking the same question three times. So the first time he asked this, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? In other words, why did you go out to see John way out in the wilderness? Why'd you go? He says, a reed shaken by the wind. In other words, did you go out there to see a man who was constantly giving in to the pressures of the world, trying to placate people and what they believe? Well, not at all. That's not what they saw from John. John wasn't some shaking reed, was he? He was a, he was a mighty oak tree. He was one that could hold up against the pressures of the secular world and in secular philosophies. He wasn't going to bend at all. And then he asked the question again. He says, what, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Hey, did you go out because he had a great fashion sense? Is, is that why you did it? Because he was wearing this nice, nice clothing. And we all know, no, he didn't wear soft clothing. What did he wear? Camel hair. All right. Look, I, I don't care if it was camel hair, beaver hair. I don't care what kind of hair it is. That's not classy. Okay. And he was, he was, he had it all. He was, he was clothed in camel hair. Uh, he, he didn't live in luxury. He was living out in the hot wilderness. He was eating locust and wild honey. And he certainly didn't live in the palace of the king. In fact, while he's speaking, he's living in the prison of the king at this particular point. And so he then asked the question a third time. He says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. That's the answer. See, John, during that time, was the most popular teacher of his day. And people were going out, uh, out of the way to be able to go and to be able to see him. And, and, and what they're saying is, hey, we didn't go out to, him, out to him because he's a guy that would say what we want him to hear. He didn't tickle people's ears. And you didn't go out to hear what he had to say, uh, uh, mainly because he, he was a really fashionable dude. And I wanted to see what kind of kicks he had on. That's not what he did at all. The reason people went out to go and hear him and see him is because he was a prophet. He preached the very word of God without compromise. That's, what they wa that's why they went out to see him and to be able to hear what it was that he was saying. He was a prophet. But then Jesus says, but he was more than a prophet, which means that he was the, Jesus' way of saying he was the greatest prophet who ever lived. Now that's saying something. Because we have some pretty impressive Old Testament prophets that we read about in the Old Testament. There's Moses, who was a prophet. He was a man who had delivered almost 2 million Israelites out of Egyptian captivity. And he did it in a spectacular way by holding up a staff, parting the Red Sea, and allowing them to escape on dry land. Pretty impressive. John never did anything like that. Then you have Elijah. You have Elijah, who is probably had performed more miraculous acts than anybody else in the Bible that we see in the Old Testament, and including the raising of somebody back to life from the dead. And yet John the Baptist never did that. In fact, the Bible is very clear from what we can tell is that he never performed any miracle at all. And Jesus still says he was the greatest prophet who ever lived. And then he ups the ante one more time. He then says in verse 28, not only was he the greatest prophet, but he was the greatest human being who ever lived. Now that's lofty praise, right? So who are you? Well, I'm the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus. That is, that is high, high praise. Now the question is, what made him great? 
So when we think of the great prophets, we, we think of what made them great was, in essence, what they did. When you talk of a great person, you say, well, this is what they were able to accomplish. Well, John was great for the same reason, but what was it that he did? What did he accomplish? He accomplished to be able to direct people's attention to Jesus Christ like nobody else in history ever had. That's what made him great. His greatness was not found within himself. His greatness was found, his greatness was found in the fact that all of him was about Jesus and directing other people to see and to worship and to praise Jesus. This is why the Old Testament prophets were great. Oftentimes we think they were great because of the cool things they did. But they were great in essence because every single Old Testament prophet was constantly calling and pointing to the Messiah would come. But they were pointing from afar. When Jesus Christ, or when John comes on the scene, guess what? He points to Jesus face to face. And when Jesus shows up, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Nobody else ever did that. And nobody through the whole construct of their life from even being a baby actually was completely consumed with the person of Jesus Christ the way that John was. When he was in the very womb, he got started early. In the very womb of his mother, he hears the Messiah's mother and he begins to leap with joy in her womb, telling him there's one who is great to come. When he's in the wilderness and he begins to preach, then the Pharisees come up to him and say, by whose authority are you speaking? Who's at the, what, by what authority are you speaking? He doesn't even talk about his own authority. He can't but help but to talk about Jesus. And he says, the one who is to come after me is greater than I, to whom I'm unworthy even to be able to untie their sandals. And he says that he has even greater authority, authority to what? Judge the living and the dead. And the last words we hear of John before he dies at the end of his life is this. He must increase and I must decrease. The reason that he was the greatest human being that ever lived was not because he performed some spectacular miracle, but he did what he was created to do. And that was to bring glory and attention to the person of Jesus Christ. That was his greatness. Now here, Jesus says something else that really kind of throws you off a little bit. It really takes you back because you're trying to figure out exactly what he means by it. He says in verse 28, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. After all this time saying how great John was, now he says the person who is in the kingdom of God, the least of that person is greater than John the Baptist. How, how, how so? Uh, this is, uh, I think, Philip uh, Riken, Philip Yancey, Philip Riken, not Philip Yancey, oh, Philip Riken explains, this is because we have experienced the finished work of Christ Jesus, and therefore by the witness of the Holy Spirit, we know things that John could only know of, uh, dream of knowing. We know the mercy of Jesus in forgiving our sins through the cross. We know the power of Jesus in rising from the dead. We know the love of Jesus in the free gift of eternal life. Here's what he's saying. The person who is least in the kingdom of God, who is the person who lives in the time of fulfillment. John and everybody behind him lived in the time of promise, the promise of the Messiah to come. Everybody was promising that one would come. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we are now in a time of fulfillment where all that was prophesied now is coming through and fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? You and I have a great advantage from those who lived in a time of promise. These people in the Old Testament, they were blessed. 
They were blessed in many different ways. One, they were blessed because they knew that a kingdom was going to come. But those who lived in, in the time of fulfillment, even the least believer, meaning the least influential, the least impactful for the kingdom of God, the reason that they are more blessed than the old is because they're not looking for a kingdom to come. They are now citizens within the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, these prophets were blessed because the Holy Spirit would come upon them on occasion when God wanted to work through them. We, who are in the time of promise, we are filled and bound and sealed by the ever-presence of the Holy Spirit within us. The Old Testament prophets would hear about the Word of God, uh, bits and pieces of God's revelation, and we now have God's full, completed canon of revelation before us. This is what makes us greater is they looked at Christ coming as a shadow. You and I have inherited the substance of all of those promises. That's what we see. They saw in part, we now see in full of all of that. We understand it even to a greater depth than what they did all those years ago. And so one of the things that we understand is to whom much is given, much is also required. They were responsible for what God had illuminated and given them and trusted them with. And now for you and I have been blessed all the more. How much more responsible are we to make much of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you this. How do people know you? Or what do they know you for? Or even ask another question. What do you want to be known for? I think we all do want to be known for something, by the way. It's usually in an area of giftedness or something. You know, some people want to be known for a great athlete. Some people want to be known for their extraordinary bodies, like your pastor. There's others that want, I don't know why you're laughing. And so I, so there's all these things. People want to be known maybe for the car they drive, for the clothes that they wear, for the great head of hair. Again, your pastor. All these things, they want to be known for something. Sometimes those things aren't so shallow. Sometimes they're a little bit uh, deeper and, and, and really actually good, right? Sometimes people want to be known as a great father and a great husband great mother and a great wife. All those things are wonderful and, and they're great. But I'll remind you of Vodibachum's statement when he says, he says, if I teach my son to keep his eye on the ball, but fail to teach him to keep his eye on Christ, I have failed as a father. And in all that we ultimately do, in all that we ultimately say, if people know us as a great athlete, we failed. People know us even as a great father that we failed. What we need to be known for, the best of us is Christ. That is what is best about us, this person. That you and I take every aspect of our life, every quality, every gift, every opportunity to be able to make much and draw people's attention to Jesus. How do we do that? Well, there's one way that you can do it. You can buy a big foam finger, sit down on 200 and point up and go, not me, it's him. Not me, it's him. I wouldn't say do that. You could do it. I'm not going to do it. But there are other ways that we make much of Christ in our everyday life. I think, I think, first of all, I think the way that we can do it is that we make much of Christ in our marriages. And the way that we do that is we show people what it's like to be in a forever unbreakable, grace-saturated covenant with God. We do that and we extend that with our spouse. People are like, you guys are so different. There's so many reasons for you to disagree and even part. And you say, yeah. But our marriage is not based on what each other does. Our marriage is based on the grace of God, the very grace that we receive and bent outwards that we've received from Jesus Christ. Then people begin to see who Jesus Christ is. 
we can, we can also, we, we make much of Christ and raising of our children, not by trying to teach them to be good boys and girls and to do as they're told, but rather to be able to saturate them in the word of God and the commands of God, not to make them good Pharisees and just to abide and do everything right, but we introduce them to the word of God and the laws of God to tenderly show them, understand that they can't possibly live up to those expectations and those demands. And then we very lovingly and graciously then lead them to the hope of the gospel and completed work of Jesus Christ. I think that we can make much of Christ through our financial stewardship, financial stewardship, and some are already sitting there going, I told you, I told you those preachers only talk about money. Well, let you know, we rarely ever do talk about money here, but we're not afraid to talk about money because we're trying to show what it looks like to be under the submission of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that includes all that we have and all that he's entrusted us with. So when you and I make sure that we are good stewards of our money, using it to propagate the gospel around the world, taking care of the poor, doing the things that believers are supposed to do, and not spend every single last dime on everything that we can possibly gain and buy inside of this world, the world begins to look at us and say, what's the deal? You say, don't you know how much you could buy? Some of you who are very faithful in tithing, don't stop and think for a moment and go, wow, that's a lot of money every single month. I wonder, just think of what we could buy with that, right? And if you go there, you're going to be in trouble. But when people sit there and say, you give your money for the purposes of God, what in essence you're saying is, look, what you love, the things of this world, is not where my greatest affections are. It's not for the creation, it's for the creator of Jesus Christ. That's how we make much of him. Another way we can make much of him is, 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 is to serve. Not to go around all the time demanding that everybody serves us and does what it is that we're asking them to do, but rather we take on the humility of Jesus Christ who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we do that, people get to see who Jesus Christ is. What we want to be known for what we want to be known for as followers of Jesus Christ. Pastor Ryan had reminded me of two scripture passages last week as we were discussing this together. Of the letter to Thessalonica, uh, Paul wrote this. He, in essence, to, to, to the Thessalonians and also to the church at Colossae, he's basically condemn, commending them, Paul is, because he knows about them and what he knows about them is Jesus. Listen to his words to the Thessalonians. He says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you to Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. He says, Everybody who has heard about you knows one thing about you, and it's that you're for Jesus. What a great testimony. Then to the church at Colossae, he says the same exact thing, or something very similar. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since you heard of our, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, a group of people that he never met before, he hears about what they've done, and the one thing he hears about them is these people are all about Jesus all the time. What a testimony! If people were to think about you, what's the first thing that they come to your to mind? Do they think about Jesus? Do they think how committed you are to Him, how much you love Him, how much you mimic Him in the way in which you live your life? You know, there are so many times we live in the world that talks a great deal about self-esteem. And I need, I need to be able to tread lightly here about the subject of self-esteem because Christians have been so indoctrinated by a secular culture that they think all this talk about self-esteem is a really great thing. And so what's important in schools even today in secular education is not that you do well and you do your very best. The, the key is that you feel good about it. 
There was a, a world, there was a study of the top 20 nations in the world, and they began to study and teach them about their academics and to see who was the smartest and the brightest. And they ended up, the United States came 20th out of 20, the top 20. But then they gave them a test determining what their, what, what, how they felt about themselves and their self-esteem, and the United States was number one. So we are the dumbest, but we feel darn good about it, yeah? <laughs> we really feel good about ourselves. And what I've told people, and you know this, you remember as a kid, and yet adults have never really grown out of the, that, that childhood, is that they're always trying to find out what they're good at. There could be a healthy part of that. It could be really, really dishonoring to God as well. And what I mean by that is this. They try to find out what they're good about, and they say, well, I'm not good at that. I got to do this. I finally found something. And then here's the problem. Whatever you're good at, there's always somebody that comes along is better than you, right? So somebody else comes along, and they're better than them, and what do, you, what do you do? You need to find the next thing. And so all your life, all you do is you're always down because you're not as good as what everybody else is. And really the truth is, if you really begin to unpack it, it's that you want to be known for something. And John was known for something. He was the goat. He was the greatest of all time. He was a man. He was literally, at that time, he was the Tom Brady. He was the Michael Jordan. He was the Gretzky of human beings because he made much of Christ. And this is what you and I want to strive for. This is what we want more than anything else. We want to make Christ known. We want to make sure that we're doing it in all of these different ways in which we wed, but most, of, most importantly, in what we speak and what we say and the sharing the gospel of one another. Now, this is the last part. We've got a couple of other branches to deal with. Look, look at verse 29. It says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Now, if you have an ESV translation, English Standard Version, uh, what I'm reading out of, it, that those two verses are in parentheses. That basically means that those interpreting the original, the, the original Greek to the English here believes that, and it has something to do with the verbiage, but believes that this is actually Luke speaking. This is what you call an aside. These aren't the words of Jesus anymore. These are the words of Luke. Other translations, they disagree, and they basically say, no, this isn't of Luke. This is still Jesus speaking. The truth is, I don't know which one it is, but it really doesn't change the meaning. The meaning is still the same. What this statement is saying is, is when he gets done with that and he says, John was a prophet, he was making much of Christ and all that he did and the message that he preached was making much of Christ through the gospel, letting people know that they were sinful in their need of Jesus Christ. That's what he was doing. But people, when you make much of Christ in that way, are always going to respond in one way or another. And we're here, what he's saying is that some of them, including the tax collector, collectors, the most sinful at all, said that John's message was right, which means that they identified themselves as sinners, that God says that we are sinful, fallen short of the glory of God. And he says that some of them responded and said, amen, that's right, and I need Jesus. He says, but yet a whole other group, the Pharisees and the experts of the law, they disagreed, they rejected it, and they said to them and go, we reject it altogether. And the way that they know who accepted and rejected was who was going to be baptized and take part in the baptism of John. It's a great lesson to us to remember. 
every time you hear the gospel and you hear any truth of the word of God being proclaimed, you are either obeying or disobeying it. There is no, neutral, there is no neutrality when you hear the truth of God's word. We're either moving forward or moving back. Well, Jesus has something to say about this. He tells a story. He says, to what shall, now this is in light of the way that people responded. He says, to what shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like the children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We play the flute for you and you, do not, you, you, you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Jesus is tapping into the culture, everyday culture. You know, I love children because they're always the same, aren't they? No matter where you go, no matter what generation, no matter what time in history, they like to play. And they like to play adult. They like to mimic what their, what their parents do. So back then, apparently, the two largest events really in, in, in their culture, apart from the things around the Jewish faith, is what? Is marriages and funerals. So they begin to pick up. They're like, hey, let's play. Hey, you want to marry me? Yeah, let's get it. All right, let's go ahead and dance. We'll play the flute and we'll dance. And so they would play marriage. Then they would sit back and go, okay, look, we got to play funeral. Somebody's got to die. Who's going to be dead, right? And so they grab them and then they begin to sing this dirge, this like death memorial type song. And it's very, if it's very down. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, to be honest with you, he is describing the Pharisees and their response to Jesus and the rejection. Now, it's hard to know exactly how he does it. Are, are, are the Pharisees, is he referring to the Pharisees and saying they're the ones that are playing the flute and singing the song? Are they the ones that are the other kids in the neighborhood going, I don't want to play. I, I, I don't want to play. I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to play funerals and I don't want to play weddings. I don't want to do anything. That might be more of what he's saying. Notice, notice what Jesus says here. He says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a, and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So what he's saying is this. He goes, some of you are never happy. John came and he was an ascetic. He was like serious, man. He watched what he ate, he, wa he, he didn't eat certain things, he didn't drink any kind of alcohol, he didn't do anything. In, in, in fact, he came and he began to say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he goes, and you guys were like, dude, this is way too harsh. This is ridiculous. Nobody can even breathe under this. This is, we're sinful, but we're certainly not as sinful as you're talking about. So they rejected the message. Then Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus is all party waiting to happen. He comes on the scene, he goes with drunkards and sinners and all these, and he's, of course, not for the sake to take on those things, but to be a witness to them. And he's like, y'all need to lighten up, have joy. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so one is really kind of like a funeral. The other one is really like a wedding when Jesus Christ comes, who is the bridegroom, and all of this is happening. And they don't like him either. If you're going to talk about spiritually, here's what they do. The gospel, Christ is being made much of through the preaching of John. People are hearing the gospel message. What ends up happening? They reject it for one reason or another, and that's how people are today. Sometimes they hear it and they, they come here, and I, I, I'm interested in the testimonies that I'll hear every once in a while. I'll say, well, yeah, you know, uh, we used to go to Mercy Hill, but you know, that's where you wanna go if you hear about sin. <laughs> Great, fantastic. Uh, the truth is we hear about sin when the text of scripture that we're working through talks on sin, right? Does that sound like a deal? And we talk about joy 
when it talks about joy. We're just going to let God dictate what he wants us to ultimately do. But some people say, that's too much. Even today, the reason that people aren't going to be born again, repent of their sin, and place their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ is because they're like, dude, that whole lostness thing, that whole really sinful thing, I know that I'm not perfect, but I'm not that. So they reject the gospel. Others will come and will say full-blown, brother, you can't do anything to earn salvation. Don't even think about it. Because the moment that you try, you, you, you're not going to be there. You're going to be off. It, you're, that, that's not what salvation is. You can do nothing to be born again to accomplish your salvation. You say, well, you have to repent and believe. Yes, but the repenting and believing is a demonstration of receiving a gift. It's not doing anything. And so what happens is the person comes up and goes, see, I don't believe that either. Because the truth is it can't be that easy. There's something else that I've got to do. And what it is, it's pride in them life, their, themselves that want to say, I'm in control of my own salvation and I'll obtain it by my own means. So this is what you have from one Sunday to the next. And so what happens is Jesus is saying, some people are never happy. They don't want to hear that they're sinful and they don't want to hear that God is gracious. So they reject it altogether. And this demonstrates a complete and utter lack of wisdom. And then he closes with this statement. At the very end of verse 33, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. See, these were the religious experts, and they always had some witty way and reasons why the whole gospel of Jesus Christ was just debunked. People do the same exact thing today. They, they look at it, they look at it as ridiculous, they look at it old wives' tales, and they think that they are so smart. God says, unwise. Those who are wise are those who are children of God who have received that gospel message. They are the one. The truth of wisdom actually is lived out in the lives of God's children, of those who recognize they are unworthy, but recognize that Jesus Christ granted them free salva salvation freely through the completed work of Jesus Christ. So let me just ask you here, what excuses are you making this morning for two things? Number one, for salvation. Man, you've heard Jesus being made much of week after week after week here. Year after year after year much trying to preach the gospel, singing the gospel, and yet no response to it. And there's something in your mind, maybe another time, this isn't right, this doesn't make sense to me. Let me encourage you to be wise. On the other side of that, there were some of you who were truly born again, but the truth is just too much you right now just too much you, just too much what you're doing, your business, your this, your legacy, your whatever, what you want to be able to be known for. And what is your excuse today from just being completely sold out for Christ and beginning to ask some really tough questions and saying, how can God be glorified and made much of in every aspect of everything I do in him? Let that be our prayer this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we've had this morning. You are worthy of all praise. And God, now that we call for a response, we pray for folks who are here, Lord, that they will, maybe some of them for the very first time, call out for mercy and grace. Stop, stop the excuses and just call out for your grace and mercy and believe be saved this morning. Lord, for many of us, may just remember that we are leaving by a legacy. And the truth is we don't want it to be anything about us. We just want people to see you. Let that be our greatest, deepest conviction and desire. Let us live that out 
In your precious name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. I'm gonna be down here. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, Pastor Nick's gonna begin singing. Sing along, but respond. Keep in mind what we've just heard and respond in prayer to the Holy Spirit in light of what you've heard, all right?